Well, as you know, or many of you know here, the Bible does not begin with the story of Israel. The Bible does not begin with the story about the church, but it begins with the story of Adam. In the opening chapters of the first book, the book of Genesis, we are introduced to the world God has made, and we learned And we learn, really, what Adam and Eve were supposed to do. We learn what went wrong. And we also learn about the aftermath of sin that resulted in brokenness and shame and curse and ultimately in death. In the subsequent chapters in Genesis, in the narrative that Moses pens for us, we see this narrowing effect, narrowing of people down to Abraham in chapter 12. Between Abraham or between Adam and Abraham, there are a ton of people. There are lists highlighting various people and what God was doing in them. But you sort of see this cone effect from many God is beginning to focus on one family, namely Abraham. And then from Abraham down to his specific family. He says in math or in Genesis chapter 12, we read in verse 2 and 3, God promises to Abraham this, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. And I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the ones who curse you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. What God promises to do through Abraham, he says, will be not just for Abraham, but for the entire world. And then we see from Genesis to Revelation, by his might, Wisdom and timing, God advances this plan he sets forward in Genesis chapter 3. And then we see not only Abraham, but we see Jacob or Isaac, his son, and then Jacob. God builds a great nation and promises that through Israel, he's going to give them one very special king. He's going to give them the rescuer who will deliver, as we find out in Matthew chapter 1, his people from their sin. But but that blessing that comes to his people is not restricted for his people. It will be proclaimed, in fact, to all the people because, friends, Jesus is not only Israel's hope, Jesus is the hope of the nations for all people, whether you're a Jew or Gentile. Christ's ministry, his earthly ministry, as we've been studying over the past couple of years, although primarily to the Jews, he also indicated throughout that it was not exclusively for the Jews, which brings us to this account here. In Matthew 15, so open your Bibles to Matthew 15, 21. We want to pick up right where we left off last Sunday in verse 20. Let us read this passage 
I'll just make a couple more remarks and we will look at the verses that are before us. Verse 21, Matthew continues this record after Jesus' encounter with the scribes and Pharisees. You probably remember how that encounter went and we will go back there and look at it again. But in verse 21, Matthew transitions and he writes, Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out saying, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon possessed. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and implored him, saying, send her away because she keeps shouting at us. And he answered and said, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she said, yes, Lord. But even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, O woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. What an amazing encounter. I'm sure many of you have read this passage before and are intimately familiar with the details of this story. You marvel at this woman's faith and you are perhaps questioning Jesus' strategy here as well. And we'll look at all of these things as we unpack this. But here's what I want to submit to you this morning, that this passage, like the previous two, is about worship. This passage is about worship. In fact, here's the lesson for us to grab onto and and think through the week as we reflect on these verses. Here's the big idea that we're going to um, talk about here this morning. Faith that results in genuine worship recognizes Christ as an abundant Lord and self as undeserving sinner. Faith that results in genuine worship recognizes Christ who is abundant, alone, no one else is, but self as undeserving sinner. I want us to see here a few qualities of genuine faith because this is where the Lord goes to, right? In verse 28, then Jesus said, oh woman, your faith is great. What makes her faith great? What is this contrast between her and what came before us here in verses 1 through 20? I want to look at these things. Number one, I want us to see the proper recognition. The proper recognition, then we'll look at the proper request, and finally we'll close in the final verses the proper resilience. Recognition, request, and resilience. Look with me at verse 21. See two important points here in verse 21. First, Matthew once again uses this word withdraw. Jesus went away from there and withdrew. Again, withdrew, and that's very important. Remember here, 
We're going through a section of Matthew, this bigger section, which we titled The Opposition to the Kingdom. Jesus is increasingly experiencing this rejection and opposition to the kingdom and the kingdom message that he brings. In 1413, if you flip back there with me, after hearing about the death of John the Baptist, we read that Jesus withdrew to a secluded place and he wanted to go and reflect and pray and he wanted to be alone with the Father. 1413. Now here in 1521, on the heels of his confrontation, another opposition here from the Pharisees and the scribes, Jesus again withdraws, but this time specifically, he goes some 30 to 50 miles north into a Gentile country. And Jesus here again and again, as he has been performing and illustrating, Jesus is in control of the timing of things. We saw in chapter 14, he didn't want people to make him the king, so he leaves. And here in 15, he does not want this confrontation with his enemies to escalate into something prematurely. So it appears that Jesus withdraws for a time to let things settle down in Galilee, but more importantly, to turn his attention now away from his people who are rejecting him and onto a Gentile who is waiting to meet him in this region. And the timing here is significant, specifically here in verse or in chapter 15. The Jewish leaders who are, were rejecting him and this Gentile woman who hardly knows him, is seeking him. Second, I want us to consider this territory. We read here, Jesus went away and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon. Unlike all the earlier places that Matthew had mentioned, this location is specifically significant. Tyre and Sidon, these are two Phoenician cities here just north of Mount Carmel, sitting on the coast of Mediterranean Sea. If you were to look up Google Math right now, you would find Lebanon. That's what we're talking about. He is moving up, away from Jewish territory into this pagan society. These cities here, Tyre and Sidon, they were famous Old Testament cities in the greater region of Canaan. So we're talking about Canaanites here, right? This is the territory that God had promised to give to his people, Israel, as he takes them out of Egypt and he says to you and to your descendant, right? All the way back in Genesis 12, I will give this land, but there are people who are living in it and those people are enemies, enemies of God. They are enemies of Israel. They were thoroughly pagan and corrupt. And their presence in the land then was a strong threat to Israel's worship of Yahweh. It was threat to his morale or to their morality as well. So we see, like, if we go back and we read throughout the Old Testament, we see just this military and spiritual conflict between Israel and these Canaanites. They are enemies. Yet we see that Jesus intentionally, he doesn't get lost here. 
It's not like he lost his GPS and all of a sudden he ended up somewhere and is like, whoops, let's get out of here. This is the place you don't want to be. No, he intentionally withdraws and he goes there. He crosses the border in order to meet and speak with a Gentile, in order to demonstrate that he did not come only exclusively for Israel, but also for Israel's enemies. As we will see in verse 26, he did not only come for the children, Jesus also came for the dogs. For the dogs. And so we read in verse 22, and behold, your Nasby translation or our Nasby translation, for, for whatever reason, they, they take this word out, behold, but this is one of Matthew's favorite words here in, in his gospel, behold. And every time he uses this word behold, he almost like, he, he wants us to zoom in and, and to look intently at this picture. What is going on? He wants us to focus on this woman here, behold a woman, but specifically that she is different. She's unlike any other woman Jesus had met before. She's a Canaanite woman. And as to reassure his readers that she's not a Jew, look what he says here. He, a Canaanite woman from that region. I mean, she's a full-blown Gentile. And get this, that this Gentile, she perceives something about Jesus, which his own countrymen, the Jews, they don't see in Jesus. This woman sees, understands hears and computes in her mind that this man is different. But the Jews failed to see it. And remember this gospel here. It was written right in the first century. It was, it was given to the first century Christians to read and to behold and to see who this Jesus is. And can you imagine these Christians, early Christians, they're reading chapter 15 and they see this contrast here between verses 1 through 20 and then verses 22 through 28. These religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees versus this Gentile woman Here are these elites, and none of them recognize. What do they do? All they do is challenge Jesus. They charge Jesus here in, at the beginning of verse, uh, chapter 15. They charge him and his disciples with breaking the law. Later on, they get offended at Jesus. Look with me at 16. They test Jesus, verse 1. The Pharisees and Sadducees came up and testing Jesus. That's what they do. What about this Gentile woman? This Gentile woman, she sees, she recognizes, she believes. And she seems to know more about this Jesus than his own people. Look how she approaches him and how she calls him. She says in verse 22, Lord, have mercy, or have mercy on me, Lord, three times. Lord, in verse 25, Lord, help me. 27, yes, Lord, 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 Lord. You know, on the, uh, on the one hand, this, this um, address here as Lord, it can simply mean just, just honor, like calling someone sir. You come up and you say, sir, I need help. Just honor and respect. 
But in this context, it's obvious that this woman regarded Jesus as much more than sir. Look, as I was reading through this account, I remembered another Gentile woman, Gentile woman in the Old Testament. Remember in Joshua, as the spies go out to spy out the same land of Canaan, right? They stumble upon who? A Gentile woman, Rahab. Rahab. And look what Rahab says in Joshua 2, 10 and 11. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you went, uh, before you went, you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. And maybe this woman here, like Rahab, she hears these stories about Jesus Christ, and she believes these reports. Friends, this Gentile woman, she believes. How did she believe? Flip with me back to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. How did this Gentile woman believe? Look what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 25. He says this. He's praying to his father, and he says at that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent, and you have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. What does that tell you? That tells you about God's sovereignty in allowing people to recognize Jesus for who he is. This statement here, this statement, it comes on the heels of, look, verse 20 of Jesus' pronouncement of punishment, condemnation, verses 20 through 24. The cities who did not recognize him and all of his miracles that pointed to him being the Messiah. In fact, the same two cities, he says, for, verse 21, if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, the, the same region that Jesus is in right now, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And here he comes to this region to demonstrate that there is faith here on display, unlike in my own hometown. God was working in this woman's heart to reveal Jesus' true identity. She recognized his divine authority, so she comes running to him for help. She acknowledges her submission to his divine lordship three times, Lord, Lord, Lord. But she not only calls him Lord, go back with me to chapter 15, not only calls him Lord, but being a Gentile, she calls him son of David. Lord, son of David, son of David. Calling him by this title, she was recognizing him as a long-awaited Jewish 
Messiah, the king who was promised long ago by God through the prophets who would be born in line of David. And she being a part, not having scripture, not having the prophets, not being part of this covenant, she realizes and she acknowledges, she recognizes him. You're the one. You're the one. Your own scriptures testify that you are that one. Lord, son of David, recognizes him and she will soon plead with him and she worships him as we will see in just a minute. This woman has a great need as we'll see, but instead of turning to her own idols as all the other Canaanites would, going to her temple to worship, to the dead gods, so many of her friends and relatives and family member would probably do that. She knows that nobody will help her except this one who happens to be in town. There's only one who can deliver, and he is here today. There's only one Lord. There's only one Messiah. I will go and plead my case. Church, real faith results when it is attached to the right person right person. True, genuine faith is always focused and it is always centered on the one whom scripture portrays to be Jesus Christ. This is Matthew's point again and again and again. Jesus is the divine Messiah who is to be believed in and worshiped. He's God's own anointed. His own people reject him. This Gentile woman hears and receives him. His own people are blind but she happens to see his own people. They, they see themselves as having no real need of the Messiah, of forgiveness, of grace and mercy. But she's in desperate need of the same. They have no faith. She has great faith because it's in the right person. Jesus reveals himself to be the object of not only Israel's faith, but everyone's faith, including our own here. Consider, as we move on to the next point, who is the object of your faith? Friends, where do you go when you have no hope? Do you throw yourself completely at the mercy of Jesus, or do you look for other things to satisfy you? She sees, she recognizes, and she goes for it because she has no other hope. Notice second that her proper recognition leads to her proper request. Proper request. Consider her petitions three times or, or really in verse 22 and in verse 25. Have mercy on me, Lord. And then in verse 25, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. What is the nature of, your requ of her request? Mercy. Mercy, just like the two blind men earlier, if you recall in Matthew 9, uh, 27, when they hear Jesus walking by, they can't see, but they hear about all this commotion. They cry out exactly the same phrase, have mercy on us, son of David, have mercy on us. 
But the difference here is this woman, she's not asking for herself. The blind men were blind. That's why they were crying out, Lord, have mercy on us. This woman is not demon-possessed. It's her daughter. Her daughter. She's not the one sick, but she's experiencing this pain on behalf of her daughter. And she requests mercy, not for her daughter, but for herself. Why? Friends, because faith is personal. Faith is personal. She knows Jesus, who Jesus is, and and she pleads for her daughter. And so this healing of her daughter would be an act of mercy for her. Lord, have mercy on me and heal my daughter, she says. What can we assume about someone who asks for mercy? When someone asks for mercy, what do they mean? Friends, when someone asks for mercy, they know that what they're asking for is undeserved. Is undeserved. In other words, they understand that they have no right to claim what they're asking. This this woman does not come to Jesus complaining that she hasn't been fairly treated. Like, she doesn't come in and says, look, look, all of you guys down south, you were born in the right family. You had all the promises. You had the scripture. I don't. So based on my lack of privilege, give me what I deserve. That's not, that's not her stance here. She didn't choose to be a Gentile. She didn't choose for her daughter to be possessed by a demon. In fact, she says cruelly, like this, this word here is evilly possessed. Desperate situation that she's in. And yet she doesn't cry out, it's not fair, Jesus. No, even though she has no control over who she is and over all of her circumstances, so far as we see from this text, she understands that she can only plead for mercy. She is not pleading for fairness or justice because you don't want to plead that. And it's instructive for us here especially today when we have such an arrogant mentality, right, of this entitlement. Because many find themselves in situations and predicaments that they did not choose to be in. The type of family you were born in, right, your ethnicity, your upbringing, your culture, your desperate situation that you're in right now. And based on these facts, and we can put in many other facts, many are crying out, it's not fair, I deserve better. Give me what I deserve. This woman here understands that even though things are not the way they are, all she can ask for is plead for mercy. Because nobody deserves grace. mercy that's the nature of grace and mercy is that you don't deserve it none of us deserve she did not deserve jesus here friends we don't deserve jesus we sometimes act like we deserve him sometimes approach our worship as we as if we deserve jesus 
Do we understand this this morning? We do not deserve. We are not entitled to grace and mercy. Friends, did anyone in the gospel so far that we've studied in the first 15 chapters deserve him? No. Did Mary deserve Jesus? No. She needed to be saved, and therefore she cries out, this is my salvation, my Lord. Did the Pharisees and the scribes and his own people deserve Jesus? No. Gentiles? No. Nobody deserves Jesus. And yet, over and over and over and over, we see that Jesus is willing to hear our desperate cries for help. Jesus hears our desperate cry for help. Except, this time, it appears Jesus is a bit unlike Jesus. Right? This is one of those passages where you're like... What do I do with this? Because before, Matthew focuses on his compassion. He sees people and he feels compassion on it and he heals one after the next after the next. And right after that, he will once again focus on his compassion, healing them. But right in the middle here, why is he unlike Jesus? Initially, verse 23, he doesn't answer. It's as if he cannot hear. It's as if he does not hear her. And and on top of that, his disciples, look at his disciples, 23, and his disciples come and implore him saying, send her away because she keeps shouting at us. They're not concerned about her. They are more concerned about themselves. And it appears that this woman is sort of following from a distance and just keeps again and again coming. Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Matthew's, or Mark's account, rather, in Mark chapter 7, verse 24, Mark tells us that this is taking place in a house. This is taking place in the house. And so she's probably outside, standing and just crying out, crying for help. Disciples are fed up. They're irritated. They just cannot seem to understand this woman's desperation. So they said, say to Jesus, send her away. And so there are two ways to interpret this, this sort of uh, command, send her away. It could mean one of maybe two things. Send her away empty-handed because she's being a nuisance, right? She's annoying to us. Just, just get rid of her. Or it could mean send her away by healing her. Right? Send her away because she wouldn't go away otherwise. I mean, she's been sitting here, standing here, crying out, just give her what she wants and go. And I think this last part, give her what she wants and get rid of her, is probably the right interpretation based on verse 24, to which we get to here in just a minute. But just focus on disciples' reaction here. You know, they always want just, just send people away. Isn't that what they told Jesus and Matthew earlier on when the crowds are hungry and, and um, you know, they're like, men's getting late. Jesus, send them away. Jesus said, no, you give them something to eat. And here again, they're irritated. Send her away. They're annoyed. But why is Jesus unlike Jesus here? Isn't he full of compassion? Isn't he 
gentle? That's what he said in Matthew 11. Why isn't he answering? She's pouring out her heart, but he is silent. I don't know if you've ever felt this way before. Maybe you're today or like, man, I'm just like this woman crying out to the Lord and I'm, I'm pleading and I'm asking, but I don't seem to get an answer. Like it reminded me of, and I'm sure you've had all these experiences when you call a certain company because you have a problem. You dial the 1-800 number. You pick up the phone and the voice on the other line assures you saying, your call is very important to us. Your call is very important to us. Please remain on the line and your call will be taken in the order it was received. And you're sitting there, 5, 10, 15, 20, 40 minutes, and you drop the call. Why? Because you're tired of it. You can't wait. You've, you've waited enough. Or sometimes, please listen carefully as the menu options have changed. And that seems to be what Jesus is doing. Click one or press one for this, press three for this. And he just keeps pressing these buttons. Why is he doing what he is doing? Friends, I will submit to you that Jesus knows exactly what's going on inside the heart of this woman. That is why he is pressing these buttons. He knows her heart. He knows that she has faith and he is moving her towards greater understanding and faith. He is not there to frustrate her. He is there to reveal what's inside her heart because that's exactly what he did with the Pharisees. He revealed what's inside of their hearts. And now he's doing the same thing in this Gentile woman. Listen, this is not the first time that Jesus encountered a Gentile, right? We read in Matthew chapter 8 where a centurion comes in and he pleads also not for himself but for somebody else. And Jesus never challenges that centurion. He says, wait or ignore. No, he answers his plea. But here he's challenging her more and more and more. He's delaying because, friends, he wants to magnify his mercy and increase this woman's faith. What do we make of his response in verse 24? I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I was only sent. Here is Jesus' statement in the nutshell of his mission, the focus of his mission. And he already reflected on that in Matthew 10, verse 6, if you recall that, right? Go when he sends out his disciples. And where does he send them? He says, go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus was promised as a Jewish Messiah who would come for his own. That was first stop. And here, the lost sheep of the house of Israel does not mean that there were some sheep in Israel who were lost and Jesus needed to gather them. No, he's saying the entire house, the entire nation of Israel, they are lost, alluding to Isaiah 53, where Israel is crying out and they're saying all of us like sheep have gone astray. His own mission was primary to, primarily to Israel. 
He wasn't in this, in this region here on a mission to save Gentiles, Gentiles per se, right? But even this encounter here, it serves to inform the disciple of his intention for his greater mission. I'm not here to save all the Gentiles, but I am here to capture her and to illustrate that I will then send you where? To the nations. Because, friends, this woman is not sent empty-handed. She doesn't hang up, nor does the call drop. She comes in verse 25, and she begins to bow down before this Jesus, and she says, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. She bows down. It's the same word that is translated earlier in, ver- in chapter 15 as worship. She worships him. In 1433, when the disciples, they see Jesus walking on water and when he silences the storm, he comes in with Peter back in the boat and they recognize who he is and they say, certainly you are God's son and they worshiped him there in the boat. And now here is this Gentile woman who also recognizes something about Jesus Christ, recognizes his significance and her need, and she worships. She bows down low before Jesus, and she says, help me. And get this, I told you this was all about worship. Between between the disciples worshiping Jesus and this Gentile woman, are these 20 verses at the beginning of chapter 15 of someone who is supposed to be worshiping, but they stand loud and proud. And that's why Jesus says, you worship me in vain, verse 9. You don't understand who I am. You don't have a relationship with me. You don't have a changed heart. You worship me in vain. I mean, consider this woman's deep humility. She recognizes Jesus as Lord and offers this humble request for mercy. She does not plead for fairness because nobody wants fairness. Nobody wants fairness from the one who judges righteously. And so she's crying out for help. Church, I think the lesson, as I noted before, is that faith that results in genuine worship recognizes Christ as this abundant Lord and self as undeserving sinner. I can't plead anything but your mercy and your help, we do not deserve Jesus. Yet he is pleased to offer himself to us. And he's offering himself to this woman, albeit very strategically here. So we saw that the woman's proper recognition led to her proper request. I want us to see in the final three verses proper resilience proper resilience. 
this woman just continues or, or refuses to leave. Jesus continues to offer or challenge this woman in verse 26. She's crying out, Lord, help, 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 in verse 26. And he answered and said, it is not good to take children's bread and to throw it to dogs. To throw it to dogs. And on the surface, it seems like Jesus is going from sort of, I don't know, uncaring to just outright rude on the surface. In fact, many are puzzled, even are disturbed by this, and many say like this account here, especially this phrase that Jesus offers, cannot be part of the original. It cannot be part of the inspired word. Why? Because how do, what do you do with this? Many um, liberal Christians accuse Jesus of being racist at this very point. Here's one of the quotes of many of the kind of nonsense that you will encounter among some of the Christians. Quote, Jesus uttered an ethnic slur. Jesus holds all the power in this exchange. The woman doesn't approach with arrogance or a sense of entitlement associated with wealth or privilege. Rather, she comes to him in the most hum human way possible, desperate and pleading for her daughter. And he responds by dehumanizing her with ethnic prejudice, if not bigotry. In our modern terms, we know that power plus prejudice equals racism, end quote. What a blasphemy. To charge Jesus with sin or prejudice or bigotry, to, to charge Jesus with any sin. How do we combat then this accusation? We need to understand this verse here in its proper context. When Jesus says it is not good, he means that it is not proper. It is not appropriate to take what rightfully belongs to some and to take that away from them and to give it to others. So in this analogy here or this metaphor, the... The children here, they represent Jews. Dogs, they represent Gentiles, or specifically in this case, this woman. And bread re probably refers to some kingdom blessings that are offered to Jews here. These kingdom blessings, including physical healing, rightfully belong to Israel, and not because they deserved it. No, it's because of God's promise. He promised back, remember, back in Genesis 12, to bless them. Back in Genesis 3, he says that there will be a seed who will come from a woman. That's Jesus here. They were promised. They didn't deserve it like this woman. But it was rightfully theirs because of God and what he said. And Jesus here is highlighting this program of redemptive history. Jews first, then the Gentiles. Salvation is to the Jew first and then the Gentile. He says it is not right to take from children and give it to dogs. The word that he uses here for dog, it's a bit different than the one that he already used or Matthew used, right, um, during the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7, 6, where he says dogs trample, right? And that, that word, it, it refers to like these homeless, wild dogs, but but this refers to little dog, kind of like a house pet, 
the kind that would just hang around the table, right, when you're eating and would just take the, you know, scraps off your table. Someone less than a family member. And I know it's hard for some to understand what that means now in our culture here. Um, Some dogs are better treated than some family members, unfortunately. But again, notice what Jesus is saying. He is not saying, no, absolutely nothing. There is no messianic miracle for you ever. That's not what he's saying. He said what he said to the woman, not to deprive her of the healing she was asking for, but to test and to demonstrate her resilient faith. Think about this. Why else would he go there? Just to deprive someone of the blessing? No, he went there to be a blessing. And notice her response. It's so humble. It is so beautiful. She says, yes, Lord, in verse 3. Yes, Lord. She didn't say, but Lord, I'm not a dog. Right? I have, I have more self-esteem than you think I do. That's not what. She's not offended. She doesn't run off. Remember what happened to the Pharisees? They got insulted. They got insulted when Jesus gave them a parable. But this woman, she embraces the Lord's metaphor and even agrees with the principle as if to say, yes, Lord, I'm the dog. I don't deserve anything. Yes, Lord. Yet, Lord. See her follow-up? Yes, Lord, but even... But even, like, yet, Lord, there's more. Man, this woman is quick on her feet. Sometimes I'm like, man, I wish I could react like that in the moment. Yes, Lord, yet, Lord, I'm not asking you to give what belongs to the children. I'm just asking for you to spare me some crumbs. Yes, I'm not worthy to be prioritized over the children or even with the children, but would you give me some leftovers? Surely you are this generous Lord. Surely you have enough. Will you answer my cry for mercy? You're the one in abundance. I don't deserve it, absolutely. But I know you're merciful, Lord. I mean, how would you explain this response? How would you explain her resilience Friends, only the grace of God. Only the grace of God. That is not how unregenerate mind responds. That's not how Pharisees responded. They are the physical sons of Abraham, and they are offended when they have absolutely no reason to be. But this Gentile woman who on the surface seems to have every reason to be offended at the way Jesus is dealing with her She's not. Why? Friends, because genuine faith is not offended. Genuine faith can never be offended. They who believe know they deserve absolutely nothing. Yes, Lord. Can't claim anything. Yet, Lord, you have all and everything to give. She demonstrates great faith. Look at Jesus' emotional response. He says, Oh, woman, your faith is great. 
Beloved, the greatness of her faith was not found in her ability to remain strong in this face of adversity, in the face of no's, but in recognizing who Jesus is and throwing herself completely on his mercy. On his mercy. She believed that he is an abundant Lord whose grace is enough for the Jew and the Gentile and saw herself as undeserving sinner. This is genuine worship. Casting yourself on Christ and acknowledging that you have no one else to run to. You have no one else who will answer your plea. And friends, he always answers. It shall be done, he says, for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. And her daughter was healed at once. As we wrap up, I want to ask you, how is your faith this morning? Who do you place your faith in? Is it directed towards the right person? Because that's the nature of faith, isn't it? Its greatness is seen in the object. In the object. When we are convinced, like this woman, that our only hope is Jesus, then we will be resilient. We will continue to trust and wait on the Lord because there's no place to go. Do you feel like Jesus might be testing your faith today in some areas? Perhaps maybe is not giving you as he did with Centurion right away, but perhaps maybe like with this woman. Friends, believe the word, believe the testimony about Jesus here. This is all we can cling to. Don't go anywhere, don't go to anyone else to get your satisfaction, to get help. Friends, take Jesus at his word, worship him today. Let the Lord mold and deepen your faith in him. He is enough, not only for the Jew, but for us. And aren't we the sitting testimony here that he is enough, none of us deserve. But so many of us here are graced to know, to recognize, to plead in him answering our call, our plea. May Jesus bless us to continue to run to him. Father, we are indebted. Everything we have is yours. We are grateful to you. We want to cry out with this woman, we don't deserve. Yes, Lord. And even if you would send all of us to hell, you would be right in doing that. But you didn't. You don't. You sent your son so that he can suffer the gruesome penalty for our sins that we would receive the perfect fruits of his righteousness and would be welcomed, just like this outcast would be welcomed to sit, as Jesus says, at the table. Many will sit at the table in the final feast, rejoicing because you were gracious to them and you're gracious to us. Father, I pray if there's anyone in this room who is doubting your grace, perhaps there are believers here also, Lord, who or just looking for satisfaction somewhere else. They need something else. Oh, Lord, help them to turn to Christ again and again.
and to know that he alone satisfies us. We praise you. We ask that you would deepen our faith. In Jesus' name, amen.